Hi, Al Morton here. I just wanted to mention that this is one of the earlier recordings from the Takeout series. It was not recorded under studio conditions and is not typical of later podcasts. I've kept it in place all the same as a kind of archival record of the beginning of the pandemic. We all know what happened next. Keep in mind that you can read details of this show and others, along with credits and links on almorton.com forward slash takeout. Later episodes include a full transcript. It's Sunday the 16th of August 2020 and this is the Almorton Takeout. Thank you for joining me. Right. Let's get this podcast done. And uh, this has got to be about the 20th attempt to try and uh, finish this segment. Uh, and as you can probably hear, there's lots of ambient sounds from the uh, port. And that's because it's hot here today. It's something like 31 degrees and I've got uh, all the windows open. So we're probably going to be joined by uh, the sounds of the street. Uh, my neighbours, crying children, dogs, and of course, church bells, all that good stuff. All part of the rich tapestry of living in a Spanish port. So my original plan was that uh, I was going to try and uh, turn out uh, one of these podcasts every two weeks. And then uh, I, I found that... Uh, couldn't really do that so then it was every month and and then every six weeks and uh, oh goodness knows how long it's been since I did the last one but uh, so I'm sorry for that if you've been disappointed or if you've been pleased I don't know (laughs) but it's just that these things aren't they're sometimes uh, event driven or sometimes uh, circumstances and I've been pretty busy uh, lately trying to promote my new book and it's it's another thriller it takes place in Spain And it's a story of vigilante revenge and corporate greed. But I'm going to talk a little bit more about that in more detail later on. But I I thought I would share with you a little bit about the process of trying to get uh, your manuscript uh, published and the various stages that that involves. And I can tell you now, it is like having a root canal surgery without an anaesthetic is the most painful process you'll go through. You tend to think, oh, well, I've written this, this wonderful manuscript. I, I don't know, the last, the last one is something like 95,000 words. And I can't crank these things out. It takes me quite a while to write them. And then you literally have to try and find someone who wants to represent this work and get it published for you by one of the major publishing houses and that is not easy that's a different process altogether so I'm going to talk a little bit about that but uh, firstly see what you make of this it's uh, one of the many outpourings from Twitter but just lately I, I can't help but feel that Twitter seems particularly angry If you elect a lazy egomaniac liar who has to have a team of nodding dog morons to support him and you have a vested interests right-wing press promoting them and unelected sociopath wrecker calling all the shots, chances are things will turn to shit pretty damned quickly. (laughs) And then she goes on. 
a border within our own country. Red taped up the yin-yang. So many customs officials, they're getting their own college. A diet of shit US meat. Stripped of our rights, making us second-class citizens in our own continent. A crap trade deal with our biggest trading partners. Wait for it, there's more. Or maybe no deal, a huge economic hit on top of a dire global recession. Whole sectors at risk, supply chains cut and shared programmes shunned. EU citizens made unwelcome and disadvantaged. Everything that was promised binned and years of damage ahead. That's the real Brexit. <laughs> I mean, really, red tape up the yin-yang. <laughs> Thank you for that, Sarah. It's lovely. I, I, I've got a, 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 an image in my mind that I'm, I'm trying to dispel at the moment, but thank you so much for that. But it does bring me neatly on to something else that happened this week. Uh, my wonderful black or blue, depending on uh, which side of the... Uh, uh, passport coloured debate you're on. Uh, my Brexity passport arrived today, the old one that allowed me uh, freedom of movement between all you, all 27 European countries. That expired, and now I've got this um, got this blue passport, black. I don't know. It's a, it's a it's a beautiful passport, and just really to just it just reminded me that of the stupidity of all of this because we. <laughs> I mean, one of the things about uh, Brexit was that we were going to um, forge our own trade deals. So, I don't know, the company that used to make the passports and have done for years, I think they're somewhere in Kent, I don't know, I'm going to look that up. But um, they didn't um, win the contract to, to make these new passports. This, this passport, which only allows us to really enter the United Kingdom... That is now designed by a French company and printed in Poland. Just think about that for a moment. A printing company, a British printing company, had to lay people off in order that this contract could be given to the great enemy, Poland. <laughs> and on the back of it, that's, that was another thing that really upset me, was that when I looked, looked at it very closely, I mean, it is a beautiful piece of work it's beautifully printed quite expensive but you know definitely worth it if you want to get into the uk <laughs> the, the 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 back has been embossed with the symbol of the thistle for scotland the shamrock for ireland the daffodil for wales and the rose for england and if I, when i looked at it i thought this symbolizes the breakup of the United Kingdom, because for sure, the, the when we leave on the 31st of December, the UK is going to want to break up. And Brexit, rather than being a symbol of British unity, has become a, a symbol of division. Division b- between um, people who... I, I mean, I've got people that used to be friends of mine that I really... We just don't get on anymore because they have such strong views about things that I, I, I mean, I don't think before all this Brexit thing ever kicked off, I don't think they ever gave Europe a second thought. But after all the shit stirring from the, the, the biased uh, political media, 
they they kind of like bought into this whole thing that the, the problem with the UK at the moment is immigrants. Let's get Brexit done and we can keep these pesky immigrants out. Except all the calamities that have happened lately, they're not really being, they've not really been caused by immigrants, have they? I mean, really, you know, the, the terrible handling of the COVID-19 pandemic, that wasn't, well, some might argue that it was caused by immigrants, but I would argue that the government's response to it has been total failure. This whole herd mentality thing, this experiment, this eugenics experiment was a disaster. Why did we do that? It was... Anyway, I, I digress. My point is, Brexit is a symbol of division, not unity. And the when you only need to look around... I mean, I, I read today that the Nissan factory in Sunderland, they're holding uh, an all-night candle vigil for workers in the plant in case there isn't a proper deal that allows the plant to continue to function. And Sunderland was one of the biggest areas that were most pro-Brexit. They, they voted out. And anyone who thought about this for more than a few minutes could see that the result of this would be that Japanese car manufacturers, unless there was a very, very, very favourable deal, would not be able to manufacture the same cars in the UK that they could on the EU mainland. It was obvious. So they were sold kind of a lie, I think. And I feel let down for them, but that is the reality. The same with Honda in Swindon and Airbus. This is just Brexit reality coming home to roost and it's going to happen in the next few months and I'm, I am concerned about it. I'm worried about it. And maybe the government thought, oh, well, you know, maybe we can pump a bit of money into these different regions or we can uh, offer some massive bribe to the manufacturers to keep them, um, keep them building cars in Sunderland and uh, Swindon or wherever, Oxford, because nobody saw COVID-19. No one saw this pandemic coming along. Well, and actually they did. It's just that that data was ignored by this government, hence all the problems with the uh, personal protective equipment. And then before, I don't want to turn this into an anti-government rant, but I really, this government says my blood pressure is shooting. We had all this clapping for the NHS staff. You, oh, we'll go out there and clap, 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 clap. But really, these people put their lives on the line to save ordinary people and the very least that we could have done was given them a small pay rise or even a big pay rise, which is what they deserve. But we had the latest round of um, public sector pay agreements and nurses were just left off the list. It's like, oh, well, if you thank you so much, by the way, uh, I'll have a clap. And all I can say to that is that the next time those damned MPs want a pay rise, they can have a clap. I will go there and clap them personally, but I wouldn't vote them one cent more than they've already got. In fact, they should have a pay cut. So usually at, uh, at this point, after so much... Um, 
Brexit and coronavirus doom and gloom. I like to say something a little bit lighthearted. Um, but I'm going to make an exception today because I learned about the uh, sad passing of Julian Bream, one of my favourite classical guitarists, uh, much loved since my childhood, really. Uh, he and John Williams and, of course, the great Segovia were huge influences on, on my own playing. So I'm just going to read you Julian Bream's updated Wikipedia entry and see what you make of that. Julian Alexander Bream, CBE, born 15th of July 1933, died 14th of August 2020, was an English virtuoso classical guitarist and lutenist, one of the most distinguished classical guitarists of the 20th century, he played a significant role in improving the public perception of the classical guitar as a respectable instrument. <laughs> I love that. I had no idea that I was playing uh, a disrespecting instrument, but there you go. That's, that's what they got to say about Julian Bream. But I think what my, my own feeling is that, uh, for me, he represented the quintessential Englishman. He was just so British and he produces beautiful sound on the guitar and he became popular, recorded for Decca, very famous. He and John Williams occasionally played together. For me that was brilliant but one of the things that came across um, from a, a little BBC documentary I saw about him was that he and many other classical guitarists of the era really did struggle for recognition and to be taken seriously. I mean, the guitar is not a proper orchestral instrument, is it? And I think that was a big problem for him. And also, when when you watch the uh, Andres Segovia uh, videos, which I'm going to talk about in another uh, podcast, but uh, he's a very interesting man, I can tell you. <laughs> um they both had this idea that they were pioneering, and I suppose they were, and it was a big struggle to them and a matter of great offence that people had to be dragged screaming and kicking to listen to the classical guitar and appreciate the skill that it took to play it and to play it well. video clips that really encapsulates this is this uh, BBC documentary about the uh, life of Julian Bream uh, going on tour and uh, they show him getting onto an aeroplane and playing in these fantastic concert halls and uh, shots of him playing at the, um, the, the palace at the Alhambra in front of the fountains very Spanish even though he's so 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 English and I loved all of that, but the thing that really pulled at my heartstrings was that there's this scene where he's, it's supposedly casually meeting some of his posh friends in a cafe, and he picks up his guitar, and he starts to play a Bach prelude. It's beautiful, and everyone's talking, and then suddenly the the, the people in the cafe become aware of this 
master of the guitar in the room. The chef comes out and he stands there, his jaw slack and in amazement. And then the camera, as he it gets towards the end of the piece and the camera pans round and there are women looking at him in total admiration for this great, great talent. Um, I, they didn't actually mention whether or not there were any um, debt collectors in the room. <laughs> I mean, that's one of the big jokes, isn't it, to, for being a professional musician? I mean, what is the difference between a family-sized pizza and a professional jazz musician? A family-sized pizza can actually feed a family of four. <laughs> right. On that happy note, I'm going to talk about something else. Here is an illustrated summary of the news. It'll be followed by the latest film of events and happenings at home and abroad. So as a footnote to all of this, I mean, there was hardly a mention anywhere in the mainstream media of the passing of uh, Julian Breen. I was very sorry to hear that he'd gone, but uh, he, he did have a good innings, to be fair. And it was really only the BBC that um, made any effort to cover the story. And I've, I felt kind of guilty, really, because one of a favourite pastime of many people on Twitter is BBC bashing. And they will say things like they, they are the Brexit Broadcasting Corporation, or they will... <laughs> my, my personal favourite is that um, BBC stands for Best Before COVID. And I think a good example of that is the coverage of Julian Bream, because they, they did seem to care. I mean, they are the channel of culture, I suppose, in a way, in the same way that the Conservative Party used to be, I should say, the party of business, although Boris Johnson did very famously say when... Uh, questioned about the harm that Brexit might cause to uh, businesses. He said, businesses. So, I don't know. That's the guy that's in charge of the country at the moment and which many Conservatives uh, died in the war. Conservatives are probably having to wrestle with their conscience about having put him in office. we're talking about the BBC I, I mean I should add that it's I can't legally watch any BBC material here in Spain they're very strict about uh, their coverage but there are ways and means and I do catch up on bits and pieces and I, to be honest I do enjoy their output and I don't really contribute although when I lived in the UK for years I did but one of the things that has happened in recent times and has made me most unhappy is that over 75s are now going to have to once again pay for their BBC license. And it wouldn't be so bad, but it, I, I, as I understand it, the license is pretty expensive and people are trying to struggle on a pension. Maybe uh, they're living in isolation or, or on their own. Um, I, I'm just going to quote something from that great bastion of truth, the Daily Express. What a wonderful publication that is. But in this particular case, I think they're hitting the nail on the head. And this is from, oh, I can't see the date, but it was just, when was it? August the 6th. So it's, fa it's fairly current. 
Uh, their headline is BBC splurges 38 million on new staff to chase up over 75s for 157 pound license fee payments. Really? Over 75s need to cough up 157 pounds for a license fee? And they're investing 38 million of the money that they're getting in to try and enforce that. That, honestly, my, my sympathy evaporates at that point. Either the BBC is providing a service which, in my opinion, should be funded by the government, but, but remain apolitical, which, unfortunately, it is not. But that's another matter. But that was a story that really upset me, and I thought, we don't need that. I Maybe they can... <laughs> Maybe they can listen to Sky News all day. I think that's free. And it's wonderful. (laughs) Oh, dear. So one of the things that I like to talk about in these podcasts is the differences between the UK and Spain and our handling of the um, coronavirus uh, pandemic. So (laughs) there was a lot of upset from people who... Uh, have booked holidays in Spain. They were expecting to come here. <sighs> Spanish rentals were and bar owners and British bar owners here were expecting the Brits to maybe not arrive en masse, but maybe expecting them to come to Spain for their annual holiday or biannual holiday rather than um, an enforced staycation, I think it's called. And... When, when the air bridge was taken up and uh, the UK said, well, anyone, going, uh, anyone coming back from Spain is going to have to be, um, it's going to have to be quarantined because we don't want that sort of thing here, leaving aside the fact that when the pandemic started, people were pouring in from Italy and from uh, infected countries, including the United States, without so much as a, a, a bio leaf. It was just waving them through. They couldn't even be bothered to do a temperature check at the airport. But leaving that aside, let's just give them the benefit of the doubt and say, well, we, <laughs> the UK had sort of basically cottoned on that it's probably a good idea not to let people who are infected with this disease overrun your country because in the end you end up with a much bigger problem and so we had this very dramatic announcement that within 24 hours the air bridge between Spain and the UK was going to be lifted uh, as in the drawbridge being pulled up and that people coming back from Spain they would need to quarantine for 14 days. A lot of people were very upset about that, especially on this side of the the Mediterranean. A lot of English people who booked their holidays, very, very upset. A lot of very upset uh, airline uh, executives as well, because they were looking forward to recovering at least some of the money that they'd lost during the um, pandemic. (laughs) One of the things that I read on Twitter was that Britain lifting the air bridge between Spain and the UK was a bit like typhoid Mary going round telling everyone to stay the hell away from her in case she caught something nasty. <laughs> and I did have a good laugh about that at the time. Now, one of the things that's been puzzling me of late 
is the rise of the anti-masker in the UK. And this is something I really don't understand because uh, the Spanish government have decreed that masks, uh, and certainly in this area, they have to be worn all of the time in public places. And they brought in strict rules, they closed discotheques down. And it's just become part of our culture. And, and when I go out... I can see that most people, I would say that 99% of the people that I see when I'm out and about, they're all wearing a mask. It's, it's uh, I think as I said earlier, it's really hot here and they're not comfortable. Nobody really likes wearing them, but we wear them because that's what is expected. But I just don't get this whole thing in the UK where there are actually rallies of anti-maskers. And I'm, I think, well, what the hell are you thinking about? Why is it such a big deal? I recall um, Isabella Oakshot, the lovely uh, blonde uh, correspondent for the uh, Daily Mail, saying that she will not be muzzled. And I thought, oh, that's, that's very strange sort of terminology because if anyone needed to be muzzled, it was her. But no, I'm, that, I'm, I don't want to make any personal attacks, but... She's she's definitely not on the side of the angels, in my opinion. But why not wear a mask? You know, it's... As somebody else posted on uh, social media, oh, well, everybody in Spain is wearing masks, but they're still having spikes, so obviously it doesn't work. And my answer to that is, don't be such a selfish... Yeah, that... Don't. What doesn't matter. Look, if... There is research that suggests that uh, wearing a mask could, could and probably does uh, limit the spread of the contagion. Then why not? Why is your uh, your human rights so much more important than those that you are planning to infect? I've been listening to the Spanish news today, and it would seem like the biggest rise in uh, infections are amongst the 18 to 30 year old group. Uh, many of whom are asymptomatic, they're not showing any signs of uh, um, being infected, but they are able to uh, incubate and help proliferate the virus. And I do feel really sorry for them because uh, nighttime is the best time in Spain, really, in, in, in August. It's, it's very hot and people tend to go out more late at night when, when the air is a lot cooler. And one of the things that they do um, now that the uh, discotheques and the bars have been uh, shut, they're not allowed to open after one o'clock, which is very unusual uh, for this, this part of the world. And they're not allowed to enter these premises after 12 o'clock. So they've been getting together and typically young uh, groups of uh, teenagers will get together and have a few drinks and this is um, known as a botion. It's quite, it's quite a common thing. It is actually illegal to uh, consume alcohol in uh, public places but generally speaking as long as there's no trouble they just left to get on with it uh, except that now there's been a new decree that uh, even though botions are illegal technically they are now very illegal <laughs> because the, the problem has been that uh, now that there's nowhere for people to go late at night when they want to uh, meet up uh, they've been going to uh, hang out on the beach which is 
very nice. I, I don't blame them for wanting to do that. So now the beaches are being closed at um, uh, after midnight. It, it's kind of sad, really. But that is a measure of how serious this is being taken in Spain. So at the beginning of this recording, I said that I would tell you a little bit about what I've been up to uh, with the book. And uh, that's all going uh, swimmingly, I suppose. <laughs> um, but the the difficulty is in finding an agent, uh, finding someone who wants to represent your work. And that is a process that um, nearly all authors have to go through. And many um, go through that process and then fail and end up sort of uh, either self-publishing or giving up, really. And... Uh, I, I went through the, the rounds of trying to find a, an agent for my first book. I found that very difficult because there are... The, the, the publishing world is, is a, it's a bit like a dinosaur. It's changed very little over the years, uh, probably on the basis that um, if it's not broke, if it ain't broke, don't, don't fix it. And that means it is... There are a lot of old-fashioned uh, ideas about uh, how to market your book to people that uh, are going to try and find you a publisher. And I've, I found, um, you see, the, the two things are completely different. When you, when you set out to write a book, it's like trying to cross, you know, the Gobi Desert. It's a long, hot journey, and it's exhausting. Or at least that that's how I would describe the process for me. Uh, but it's also enjoyable. You know, we're, we're writing a book because we've got something to say or a story to tell. And the journey you know, of a thousand, thousand miles starts with the first step. So I just started to, with my first attempts, I thought I'd just get going. I'll write something and see how it goes. And I kept going, kept going. And eventually... Uh, the 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 story came together and you finally get to the end of uh, your manuscript and then you have to do the second draft uh, proofread it all the things that you do to make sure that you're not just cranking out a load of old rubbish and you end up with this manuscript the next thing you have to do is find someone who wants to represent it and I didn't know anything about this so this process seems to <laughs> One of the problems is that uh, you have to, having identified who is it that is going to possibly buy your book, you then have to approach agents uh, because a lot of the big publishing houses, in fact, all of the big publishing houses, will not accept direct submissions from uh, writers. It's no good just um, sending a letter off to Random House with your manuscript and saying, hey, <laughs> I got the next Harry Potter for you. <laughs> <laughs> that it will just go straight in the shredder, I can tell you that. <laughs> so you write to agents. Um, the what I, first thing I noticed was that the agents on uh, the other side of the Atlantic, the, a lot of the publishing business in the US is centred around New York and in, obviously in the UK, uh, around London. 
it just seems that the American agents are used to receiving huge volumes of uh, requests from authors to review their work and maybe uh, give them representation. And, and the same in the UK. But the American agents don't even want to look at your manuscript. I don't want to even see a sample of your writing. All I want to see is a simple letter, one-page letter, that introduces your book, something about yourself, and then if we like it... Um, will ask you for some material and the and the for the um, British agents uh, they they are a lot more fussy I think or some of them are uh, they want a properly uh, formatted a letter of introduction I suppose and then they want to know a bit about you they want to know about the book they want to see a synopsis and they want to see uh, currently they seem to be asking for like the first three chapters of your book fine you know but it's different. You can't. It just seems that there's no one size fits all, and different agents have different ideas. So it's no good sending a manuscript that is, I know, a dark thriller, to an agent that has a special interest in science fiction. So all of this takes quite a bit of work, and then you send out your queries. Uh, that's what we call them, and then. If you're lucky, you'll get you'll get an email reply that says, owing to the huge volume of uh, submissions that we receive each week, we can't give you any personal feedback on uh, the material that you submitted. But, and it's usually something along the lines of, it's not a good fit for our agency or something like that. And that is the classic rejection that even great writers like Stephen King, J.K. Rowling, and even Charles Dickens had to uh, go through this kind of process. Uh, I think uh, Stephen King once famously said that uh, he had a spike on his bedroom wall that he used to put all his rejection slips on, and when that was completely full, he just replaced it with a bigger spike and carried on writing. Right, I'd like to uh, close now with a, a couple of guitar-related stories. And my first is from my great friend who uh, paid us the uh, honour of coming to visit us a couple of years back. And we went to pick him up at Alicante Airport and uh, we're waiting behind the uh, security cordon and the big sliding doors open and out pour the passengers from his flight from Birmingham. And amongst them, there's the inevitable stag party. And this lot, they look like a bunch of extras from a, a, a Mad Max movie. And leading them is the tallest, most terrifying looking character I'd ever seen. Except that uh, he's wearing a long white veil. He's uh, covered his cheeks with rouge, got bright red lipstick, and is wearing a pair of the fluffiest, pinkest slippers I've ever seen. And then behind them is a solitary figure, and it's my friend. And he's dressed in a, a three-piece suit. He's looking very smart indeed. And we all pile into the lift. <laughs> and I can see my friend looking at this character. And the leader of this group is eyeing my friend suspiciously with his bow tie and my friend is looking right back and suddenly the guy says who are you looking at and my friend says I'm looking at nothing 
so I can sense that something is is possibly going to kick off. So I, I uh, try a bit of distraction therapy, and I, I say to uh, my friend, I said, you didn't really need to dress up to come to Alicante, although you do look very, very smart. And he said, I had to do something to differentiate myself from the scum that I flew out with. At which point, the lift went ding, the door slid open, and we quickly rushed out to avoid being lynched. <laughs> but that wasn't that wasn't the uh, um, beginning of his troubles. He'd had a di- he apparently had had difficulty getting onto the flight because uh, he'd gone through security in Birmingham, and uh, it turns out that you're only allowed to take something like a hundred milliliters of liquids into the cabin with your hand luggage, and he'd been pulled up, and <laughs> he'd said to them, "Well, as it happens, at my local Tesco Express." You can't buy vaginal lubricant in less than one litre quantities. <laughs> He's lucky to get on the flight at all, I think, but there you go. <laughs> right, my, my second story uh, concerns a period uh, when I was a, a kid and I used to have guitar lessons in the Spanish Guitar Centre. And my instructor was the very austere Mike Watson. It must have absolutely killed him to, to teach me. He was very strict, very precise and his whole thing was attention to detail and we got to the end of what must have been an exhausting lesson for him and we're in the little hallway of the Spanish Guitar Centre Bristol and uh, there's a woman there leafing through the music in the uh, music racks and uh, she picks out this piece of music and she goes oh um um how much is is this and he looks at her and then he looks at the music and she's picked out Cavatina, the theme from The Deer Hunter, played uh, originally popularised by um, John Williams, or it's his arrangement, I think. And he's, he's, he says to her, um, is this for you, madam? And she says, oh, no, 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 it's for my daughter. She's very, very, very good, you know. And Mike... <laughs> He leaned over, he picked the music up, (laughs) then put it back on the rack, and he said, Oh, I don't really think this is for her. I mean, (laughs) it's quite a difficult piece. I wouldn't want her to be disappointed. (laughs) So there you go. I'm going to uh, say goodbye now. I'm going to uh, play uh, Cavatina with a slightly um, jazzy intro, but... um, (laughs) I hope you won't be very, very, very disappointed. And I want to uh, give my thanks to to Sarah Murphy for allowing me to recirculate her comments about Boris Johnson. And also to uh, Tim Walker for his tweet about Typhoid Mary. That definitely brightened up my day. And not least to my great friend Mike Britton, uh, without whom much of this would not have been possible go and uh, check out his uh, YouTube channel, go and look him up he's uh, well worth a listen bye
Okay, I haven't gone yet. I just wanted to remind listeners that details of these shows, including music credits and links, are available on almorton.com forward slash takeout. Scroll down the page to the player for the current show, then click on the link below. This podcast was written, produced and performed by Al Morton. <laughs> Stay on the line for a quick taster of what's coming up in episode 6, The Cruel Sea. Is there anyone there? Yes, what do you see? Iceberg, right ahead! Thank you. And this is where the blue sky thinking really kicks in, because one of the suggestions was that uh, they, they built some kind of huge wave machine which they could attach to the side of British warships, I suppose, and these machines would create such big waves that the dinghies would not be able to pass from the French side to into British waters. They would turn around and maybe settle down in France. Who knows, perhaps they could learn French and brush up on their surfing skills. Talk about the cruel sea. And I'm just left thinking, what kind of person have you got to be to think that it's okay to treat people like that? And I don't want to denigrate Pretty Patel too much. She, uh, I'm sure she does an excellent job when no one's looking. I went to a, a local language school and started to improve my Spanish. And then one day they announced that there was going to be a, a paella competition. Now, one of my problems with being... British is that we think that we're universally brilliant at everything so I I had done a bit of cooking I I'd cooked some what I thought were pretty good paellas in the past so I said yeah okay I'll do it and I, I brought with me the Jamie Oliver approach to making paella We arrive at the uh, Vickers Tea Party. We're a little bit late as usual. And uh, no, actually, I was late. Uh, I was late picking him up. He, he's never late for anything. And, <laughs> and the, we were greeted by the Vickers wife. Oh, I've got to go off and prepare fairy cakes or something. And off she flounces and points at wherever it is that we're supposed to play. Uh, you know, in the middle of some lawn where there's no electricity or anything. And... <laughs> Um, I bring up the matter. Well, what what are we going to plug our equipment into? And she, and she would say, "Oh, um, um, what do you have to plug your guitars in? I hope it's not going to be too loud." <laughs> right. Uh, yes. All this and more in the Almorton Takeout episode six: The Cruel Sea. Catch up with you later. <laughs> <laughs>